Good morning, people of God. It's always a joy to see your faces up here, you know, uh, to be able to see everyone's face at the same time. And uh, just just the wonderful privilege it is to be able to share God's word as we gather as God's people here at Four Corners. It really is uh, an incredible thing to gather as one, uh, the many as one. And to be able to witness a baptism, you know, like we were able to last week, to be able to see this, this glorious picture of the gospel of Christ the Lord has given us. As we talked about last week, the Lord has given us these two pictures that show us what the gospel is. We're told throughout scripture what the gospel is, what it is about, the message of the, the euangelion, the, the good news Uh, That message is told to us throughout Scripture and explicitly in the New Testament. But we get these wonderful pictures, these repeated pictures throughout the history of the Christian church that show us the realities of the gospel. So it is certainly something not to take for granted. And I I thought as Isaiah hugged Mark and covered him in water, I don't know if he was able to be out of change shirt or or, or what, but uh, I thought uh, that's worth every bit of that drop of water if he has to wear it all day. What a blessing to be able to participate in that. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 29, uh, verses 1 to 28 is where we'll be today. Exodus 29, verses 1 to 28. Our time in Exodus has brought us up to the tabernacle and then to the priests. And so we've gotten the, the structure itself of the tabernacle, and then uh, now we are looking at the priests, those who function within this structure, within it and around it. These are the servants of Yahweh and the representatives of Israel. As we started with when we began to look at the priests, that's fundamentally what they are. They serve Yahweh, so their direction is vertical, most fundamentally, but they also are representatives of the people. They have the people's names, at least the heads of the tribes of all of the people written on them in two places. They represent Israel as a whole before the Lord. They are the holy men who serve the holy God in the holy place, representing the holy people. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about the priests and their garments in particular, what it is they wear, the special clothing that the priests were to wear as they served God in the tabernacle. And we've been able to see so much symbolism as we've talked about the different priestly garments, the aphod and the breastpiece, the robe and the turban, and all of the different uh, symbolic points that we've had as we've gone through these pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I was, I was sharing this with someone this week, how when we come to the New Testament, sometimes we forget that the writers of the New Testament, they had all of this packed into their worldview. Uh, this was uh, woven into the fabric of everything that they thought as Jews. And so it's important for us to see, as we, as we think about the, the depth of the gospel, as we think about the 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 height and depth and breadth of the glory of Christ. It's important for us to go back to these passages and to realize how much is truly there and how much is really assumed and worked out from as the apostles write the New Testament. 
We cannot merely be New Testament Christians. We are whole Bible Christians taking in all that God has revealed from Genesis to Revelation, understanding that all of it equips us for every good work. All of it makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All of it rejoices our hearts and makes us wise. All of it we need to know Christ and to serve him with this one life. We recognize as we're going through this topic of the priests that it is a little strange for us as we talk about these priests. In fact, the whole idea of priests is very distant from our experience. Now, I know as I say that, some of you are thinking, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, I can remember, and you go back. Maybe you were uh, raised Catholic. In fact, I think we have a number of folks here uh, within the church who were raised Catholic. So this is not very distant uh, from your experience. Now, I was raised Southern Baptist, so very distant from my experience. And I know for others of you that was the case, or that is the case as well. But on the whole... Uh, This is distant to us, distant from us. As a Reformed evangelical church, we do not have priests. And so even discussing priests is foreign in that sense. But we need to recognize that we do have two things uh, that become highlighted as we are looking at this topic of priests. We have two things. First, a priesthood of believers, and secondly, We have a great high priest. These are two massive themes that we as Christians do very much focus on. The priesthood of believers and our great high priest. And what we need to see is that both of these flow out of this tabernacle background. In other words, to function as a priesthood of believers, it is important that we have these stones in place mentally. For us to understand the glory of Jesus Christ as our one great high priest. We need this information in place. We need these pictures in place. We need this symbolism to really enter into the glory of who Christ is as our high priest. We get both of these emphases in the New Testament. The priesthood of believers and Christ as high priest. So 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 5 says this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And, And what that tells me is that there is a sense in which what we are witnessing, what we are reading about is happening in our lives every day. And so as we go about our lives, as we live out our lives, as we pray to God, as we, as we carry out our worship privately, and as we gather corporately, that what we are witnessing with these priests and this high priest and all that's going on there is being carried out in our lives every moment of the day. And then we read in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, how practical is that? Just to consider all the confidence, all the assurance, all the security, all the boldness, all the joy and hope that is packed into the fact that Jesus Christ is our high priest. That he has passed through the heavens. That he stands always interceding for us. That we can come. In all of our prayers, this high priestly reality is pulsating before our eyes. There's not a single time in which we pray where these great truths are not in practice, in force. Every single moment of our lives, every time we pray, we are praying into and through these high priestly realities. So I try to say these things so that as we're going through all of this with these garments and the sacrifices, today we'll look at some of that. And as we've talked about the structure, that the importance of it and the meaning of it, the significance of it for understanding our Bibles and even carrying out our Christian lives, that that stays with us mentally. That we don't lose sight of how truly relevant these great truths are from the book of Exodus The title for the sermon today is Setting Apart the Priests, Part 1. And this topic of setting apart the priests or consecrating the priests will take us up through the end of chapter 29. But today we will only cover the first 28 verses. And this was a particularly difficult uh, passage to determine how to break up. I knew early on that I wasn't going to take on the whole thing in one sermon. Uh, But we'll talk a little later about why it is that I've broken it off at verse 28. But here in chapter 29, we are reading a description of what was summarized back in chapter 28, verse 41. So we've already seen this hinted at. This has already been anticipated for us in our passage from last week. Chapter 28, verse 41 says this, And you shall put them, speaking of the the special clothing, the the, the priestly garments, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, And on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So that little summary is what we're going to look at in more detail this morning, or what we're going to begin looking at this morning. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 29, verses 1 to 28. This is the word of the living God. And I'll say it this way. This is the word of our heavenly Father. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, And unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons 
to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put them on Aaron and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the aphod and the aphod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the aphod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails. And the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood And put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet. And throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, And on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy. And his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram. And the fat tail. And the fat that covers the entrails. And the long lobe of the liver. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them. And the right thigh. For it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread. And one cake of bread with oil. And one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons. And wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And this is probably a wave forwards and backwards. It's a wave that uh, indicates giving and then receiving. Verse 25. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his son's. 
It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. You can go to be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come to understand his word, as he applies it to our hearts, as he convicts us and encourages us, comforts us, does all the work that his spirit does by the instrument of his word. We were talking about this the other night in family worship, how the Holy Spirit is like a surgeon who uses a scalpel. The scalpel is the word, or, or like a, a builder who uses a hammer or a saw. That, that, that is the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to do his work in us. So we need his word. So let's thank God for it, and let's ask that he would use it this morning. Father, we're thankful that we're here today together, gathered in the name of Jesus Uh, gathered as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, covered with the blood of Jesus. Father, we are such a blessed, infinitely blessed people. Lord, we have all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, we set our minds on things above where Christ is, And Christ, who is our life, when he appears, we will receive all that we hope for, Lord. And all that we already have will be fully realized. So, Lord, we praise you this morning as the people of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he is our high priest. And even now, in this prayer, that he intercedes for us. uh, That he is faithful and true. That he gave himself for our sins. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us that we might be free of the guilt of our sin and that we might have the power of sin broken in our lives by his spirit. Lord, we thank you that uh, we get to grow this morning by our time together, fellowshipping and singing your praises and partaking in the Lord's Supper and sitting under your word. Lord, would you teach us this morning? Would you give us greater understanding Would you work in our intellect? Would you work in our will, in our affections? And Lord, would all of this divine work show up in our human actions? Would it show up in our day-to-day living and walking? Would it show up, Lord, in how we treat one another today, this very day, and how we uh, treat our husbands and wives, how we treat our children, how we treat those who mistreat us, and how we Love our enemies. Lord, would you help us uh, today to be built up in this most holy faith by means of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take in the first part of this passage, we're going to look at two things this morning, and you'll see those up on the screen if you're taking notes. So we'll look at two things. First, presenting the servants. That's what we have in verses 1 to 9. And then performing the sacrifices In verses 10 to 28. So presenting the servants and performing the sacrifices. So let's begin with presenting the servants. And we're going to look again at verses 1 to 9. So try to hone in there and focus carefully on these words. Verses 1 to 9. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, you shall make them of fine wheat 
flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the aphod and the aphod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the aphod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. This section begins with gathering, bringing together all the things needed to ordain Aaron as high priest and his sons as priests. And as we're reading through that, it just reminds me once again how careful the Lord is to stipulate precisely what they are to do. The Lord lays it out with such clarity Now, it may not seem like a lot of clarity to us because it's so foreign, but you do notice the sense in which it almost sounds like a manual that you might would give a child for putting together some toys, Uh, even a smaller child, as as you're talking them through the different things. It, It reads so clearly. And I think that just reminds us of how the Lord graciously is clear with us in what it is to live unto him. God doesn't leave us in this sort of shrouded mystery. Uh, He doesn't leave us in the fog. He tells us what it is to serve him, what it is to live for him. So anyone who, who says that they're ignorant, anyone who pleads ignorance is told to take up and read, right? There is no excuse for our ignorance because God lays it out for us so clearly in his So where there is ignorance, where there is frustration with ignorance, take up and read. And let me say this, you know, I've heard Christians over the years who have talked about ignorance as though it is a virtue. Uh, It is utter silliness. Uh, Sometimes uh, knowledge is is put in, in contrast to piety. So there's this sort of experiential kind of Christianity that really looks down on doctrine and propositions and looks down on study and all of that. And so really it's just about personal piety and the experience of that before the Lord. Well, that is utter silliness when you come to Scripture. Knowledge and pious experience always are together. Ignorance of God's truth is never a virtue. So we have here such clarity as God describes what it is that his people are to do in order to set apart these priests. So first we have the animals, a bull and two rams without blemish. These are the very best. They are without blemish. They are not to have any of the blemishes That would make them less costly animals. They are to be costly animals. It is to truly be a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice when it hurts. It is a sacrifice when it costs. It's a sacrifice when we must forego. Not giving the Lord the leftovers, the scraps, the marred stuff, the broken pieces. 
and so forth. A bull and two rams without blemish. The animals. Then we have the wheat. A basket of unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And you might ask, well, why is it unleavened? Well, probably various reasons, but uh, on the surface, at the very least, it draws the mind back to Passover. And, and nothing really defines the identity of the Israelites quite like Passover. It's the very beginning point. It's as God brings them out and establishes them as his people in the covenant that he makes at Sinai. It's that great moment of rescue and also judgment upon Israel's enemies. And you will remember that during the Passover, the bread was to be made as unleavened bread because there was not, not time to leaven it because God was going to come through and strike the firstborn within Egypt, but he was going to spare on account of the blood over the doorposts and on the sides of the homes. He was going to spare the Israelites. So any mention of unleavened bread has to first and foremost go back to Passover every time. These things would occur, the people would be reminded of their identity and God's great rescue. But this unleavened bread would also be a picture of letting go of the old. You know, when you have leavened bread, you bring forward the yeast and you work that into the dough. Uh, And when you don't have leavened bread, it's a clean break. It's a picture here of a clean break occurring as these men step from just being ordinary Israelites, and they step into this role of holiness, this role of serving God and representing the people, this role of being priests. So the animals, the wheat, then we see the people, Aaron and his sons. And notice that Aaron and his sons are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is what it says in verse 4. In other words, they are being presented to Yahweh for service. Uh, It is the picture in the military of sort of getting in formation, of coming and standing in formation, being presented uh, perhaps before a commanding officer. They are being presented before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, presented to Yahweh, ready to serve in this capacity. And out of this presentation, they will be anointed, ordained, and consecrated through the ceremonies that will follow. So everything that we will go on to read follows out of this presentation of the servants before the Lord to serve in this holy way. So what happens once these men are brought forward, once they are presented, so you have everything gathered there, you have the animals, you have the basket of of grains, and then you have the people. What happens next? <clears throat> well, first, they are washed with water. They are washed with water. This is a picture, as we recognize, of purification, of cleansing. And there is a sense in which baptism represents that as well. Baptism, by the way, is full of imagery. It is full of symbolism. Most fundamentally, I think from Romans 6, we understand that baptism is a picture of union with Christ, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But baptism is full of past, present, and future symbolism. 
And one of the symbols of baptism is this picture of cleansing, of washing, of purification. As one goes down under the water and they come up, the water has cleansed them, as it were. It is also a picture of preparation and newness. Baptism reflects the newness. You go under the water and you come up to newness of life. You come up, as Paul describes it in Romans 6, you live out this newness of life that is a, is a result of your conversion. And the same imagery is present here. These priests will now, having been washed, they will now begin to function shortly in this way as priests. We've already seen this emphasis on purification and cleansing back in Exodus 19. You'll remember verses 10 to 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So you imagine all of Israel, this two plus million people, are, are supposed to wash their clothes to prepare to meet Yahweh as he descends on Mount Sinai. There is the importance here of reflecting the inward reality. The outward washing reflects the inward reality. And this was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. They were so good at doing all of the outward washings and all of the outward things, whatever they may be. In fact, they prided themselves on doing all of those things precisely and perfectly, but Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They looked glistening and clean on the outside, but on the inside it was decay and rottenness. Nadab and Abihu should have considered this more thoroughly when they were washed in this way. We know that later they are killed by the Lord in Leviticus 10 as they offer strange fire to the Lord. This washing is a picture of what the Lord was calling Aaron and his sons to on the inside within their hearts. And let me say this, we may be tempted to think that really with all of this tabernacle stuff and priest stuff, that what God's really interested in is, is the outside, but all along from the very beginning, we know, going back to Cain and Abel, God's concern is the heart. It's always the heart. But let me say this. There is a kind of piety that sees a divorce between the heart and the members. And what we recognize is that everything that's going on in the heart shows up on the outside. The inside comes out. So we can't live in this fantasy world in which it's just sort of me and Jesus and my heart. Because all that we believe and all that we trust in, all that we pray about to the Lord, it shows up on the outside in our walk before the Lord and among other people. So this is not merely external cleansing. This is meant to be a symbol of the heart as these men step into this role of representing the people and serving their God. So first, they're washed with water. Second, they are clothed in the garments that we've read about over the last couple of weeks. We've talked a lot about these different kinds of garments. First, Aaron 
is clothed with his special garments. We remember that only Aaron wears the aphod and the breastpiece. Only Aaron wears the robe. Only Aaron wears the turban. These garments are for the high priest alone. But then we see here also his sons with their garments. So there is a distinction between Aaron and the other priests. Third, after the clothing comes the anointing. And notice here that they are anointed in their clothing. So sometimes, you know, we think we, we overlook the order of events. We just kind of lump it all together. But it's important here to recognize that they, they are first clothed and then they are anointed. So they are anointed in their clothing. And what that tells us is that this is functional. There is a readiness here. They are anointed as functioning high priest, high priest and priests. They are anointed to do a particular work. This is not just a mere status elevation. This is for a particular work. And this is one of the things that we emphasize any time that we appoint an elder or a deacon. And once again, let me just say we're not conceiving of elders as priests. But any time within the church as we, as we appoint an elder or a deacon, we are clear that this is not some sort of status boost. Uh, this is not some sort of elevation. This is not a ribbon that you put onto your chest. A person is being appointed for a particular role. In other words, get to work is what it all says. That's exactly what the appointment says, and that's precisely what this anointing oil says. Get to work. There's a readiness in the clothing to carry out the function, the work. No mere status here, but work. And this anointing, is here only mentioned of Aaron, and he is the focus, as we see. And it may be that he is the only one anointed in this particular way. And so we read in verse 7, You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So Aaron is the only one who is mentioned here as being anointed. And we do find this in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, where he is described this way as the priest who is chief among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. Now, later in Exodus, we read that all the priests were anointed. And in fact, in 28 uh, verse 41, we read that they would all be anoint, anoint them. But we read in chapter 30 verse 30 and chapter 40 verse 15 that all the priests are anointed. But here only Aaron is mentioned, and it is because Aaron's anointing is the focus. And it seems as though Aaron would have been anointed in a different kind of way, where the oil is poured out over his head. Perhaps the other priests are anointed by merely smearing the oil on the forehead or something like that. There seems to be a uniqueness here in the way that Aaron is anointed. So what does that tell us? Well, it's exactly what we talked about last week. There is only one. Throughout Israel's history, they are meant to focus on the fact that there is one mediator. At the end of the day, there is only one man who has the bells jingling when he goes into Yahweh's house. 
There's only one man who bears the names of Israel on his chest and on his shoulders. There's only one man who once a year goes into the most holy place at the Ark of the Covenant and puts the blood on the mercy seat. There's only one. So throughout Israel's history, they're not looking for multiple priests. They're not looking for multiple mediators. There is only one. One And the same is true of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He says, there will arise a prophet like me. Now we know there were many prophets, Elijah and Elisha and so on and so forth, going all the way back to Samuel. But Moses identifies one unique prophet. And here we see, even in the anointing, that there is one unique priest. So the priests and the high priest, in particular, is an anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah figure. There is a sense in which you would call the high priest a Messiah. He is a Messiah. He is an anointed one, one who receives the oil, a Messiah figure. And we recognize that this is a pointer to the anointed one, to the Mashiach, to the Christ. Christ means anointed one. And we also see this in the Old Testament with the kings. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, we know that Saul was Israel's first king. And it was a colossal flop. But nonetheless, God had Saul anointed as king. The people wanted a king. They wanted a king just like the kings of the other peoples. They wanted someone who was tall in stature, broad-shouldered, lean muscles. I don't know what all they were looking for. But they wanted someone who looked like a great conquering king. And so God gave them a descendant of Benjamin. He gave them Saul. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 about Saul. Then Samuel took a flask of oil And poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. We also get this later with the prophets. So God tells this to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 16. And Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And so now, by the time we get to this point, we have the anointed priest, specifically the high priest. We have the anointed king, and we have the anointed prophet. And this is, I think we are meant to understand, a commissioning and an empowering for the task. It is associated with the Holy Spirit as with David when he is anointed by Samuel. So let me read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. It says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So this is the famous story where Samuel goes and There are all these brothers, and David, he's the shepherd, the youngest, the shepherd. He's just out in the field. Jesse, his father, doesn't even think to bring him in. It's just kind of sad. He's left out with the sheep, and and he's the one. He's the one. 
And so he goes through all the brothers, and none of them is the one. Do you have any other? Well, there's David. Bring him in. And he's the one anointed as the king. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So there you get this imagery of the spirit's empowering presence. Now you don't get that in Exodus, granted, but it, is, it does come later. And so the picture is one of commissioning for a particular work. Notice when Saul is anointed, he's anointed to reign over the people, to save the people. And he is empowered, just as we see here with David, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, now, they are ready. They are ready. Washed, clothed, and anointed. Now they are ready, but ready for what? And the end of verse 9 points us forward. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and and his sons. This is pointing forward to what follows. In other words, they are now ready to be ordained. And how is it that they will be ordained? And the answer is sacrifice. Sacrifice. So that brings us to our second point this morning, performing the sacrifices. We've looked at presenting the servants as they are brought there before the tent of meeting and clothed, washed and clothed and anointed. Now we come to performing the sacrifices. And for that, let's read again verses 10 to 28. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails And the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs. And put them with its pieces and its head. And burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And on the tips of the right ears of his sons. And on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. 
Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings and their, their contribution to the Lord. That's a lot. There's a lot there. But let me boil it down for you. There are three sacrifices mentioned here. Three. And we know that already because there were three animals brought uh, to the tent of meeting. And together, these three sacrifices create a pattern. So here's the pattern. Uh, and we can go through this a little quicker because there is a pattern for each of these three sacrifices. Each of the three sacrifices uh, abides by this pattern. And so here it is. First, the animal is brought forward and Aaron and his sons place their hands on its head. Second, the animal is killed. So the animal upon which Aaron and his sons put their hands is killed. Third, the blood of the animal is applied in a particular way. And then fourth, the body of the animal is sacrificed in a particular way. So that's it. That's the, that's the pattern for the sacrifices. And that's the sort of thing that you will see as you go into Leviticus. So what we're being introduced to here is the sacrificial system. This is the first uh, real extensive account that we've received of these various kinds of sacrifices. And here we're getting a bit of a template for the sacrifices that will follow in Israel's history. So this is the pattern. So let's take a look, let's take a little time and look at each of these before we finish up this morning. So first, there is the sin offering, which runs from verses 10 to 14. It's called here the sin offering or a sin offering. Here the sacrifice is a bull. This is a costly animal for a very significant moment, the ordination of these priests. It is a costly animal. And its blood is applied to the horns of the bronze altar and then poured out at the base. The liver, the kidneys, and the fatty portions, the best portions, anytime we get this emphasis on the fatty portions or the firstborn or, or, or without blemish, those are the ways in the Old Testament that something precious is denoted. The firstborn, the fatty portions, and without blemish. This is the, the best of the best of the best, so to speak. So these things are burned up on the altar as a sacrifice, and the rest is brought outside the camp to be burned up. This is a sin offering for Aaron and his sons. So none of it is to be eaten. It is a sin offering for these priests. But it also has the effect of purifying the altar for service. And so that's the reason these horns on the altar, we talked about that when we looked at the bronze altar. At each corner, it has these four projections, these four horns. Uh, at each corner, one horn, four total that come up. And so the blood of this bull would have been smeared on each of those horns. Now, there's a lot of things going on here with this. But the first thing to recognize with the altar 
is the fact that there is contamination from Aaron and the priests. Aaron and the other priests do not come and carry out their duties. They do not come and do all the work and service that they carry out in the tent of meeting. They do not do that undefiled. They are sinners, and they, they will always be sinners. So they come before the Lord stained by sin. And oftentimes, as I've said before, we take our sin very lightly. But if we could see our hearts and we could see our sin from God's perspective, we would understand why it is that there is eternal judgment in hell. Sometimes the reason that people have such a hard time with hell is because they, they really don't understand the nature of sin. And the truth is that we'll never in this life understand the depth and the breadth and the height and the ugliness of our sin. But that sin defiles everything that Aaron and his sons do in the holy places. And so the altar itself must first be purified by the blood. We also see here an identification of the priests with the animal, that they lay their hands on the animal, and the animal becomes a substitute in their place. So they are not killed. Their blood is not smeared. They are not burned up on the altar. It is the bull, the bull who is sacrificed in their place. And an explanation of this focus on blood and This focus on sacrifice comes, I think, very clearly in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the the life. So why is it that blood is everywhere in all of this? In the sacrificial system of the Israelites, there's blood everywhere. Well, it is because blood represents the life of the sacrificial victim. Where blood is applied, death has occurred. We read this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be a substitute. There has to be the application of blood for there to be the forgiveness of sins. And the reason for that is because the penalty for sin is death. Death must occur for our sins. God never just looks away from sin. Understand that. We may characterize God in that way in our minds, that God just sort of carries our sin off, or he removes our sin, or he chooses not to look at our sin. Not so. Every sin must be paid for with death. If God could do that in his perfect justice and holiness, there would be no need for the cross. The cross tells us that every single sin must be paid for with death. And that the only way that that sin can be forgiven, the only way that sin can be removed, blotted out, cast as far as the east is from the west is through the blood of the sacrificial substitute without defect, perfect, and holy. Without the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would all perish. Apart from Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, 
we would have zero hope in this life. We would have no basis whatsoever to approach God. We would have no basis whatsoever to say a single word to God or to think a single positive thought about God. It would only be wrath. It would only be judgment. God's wrath must be appeased. God's justice must be satisfied. And that comes only, only by way of the blood of Christ. The second sacrifice runs from verses 15 to 18. And here it is a ram. And in the same way, Aaron and his sons put their hands on the head of the animal. This time, the blood is thrown against the sides of the altar, and it is completely consumed by fire on the altar. This is the whole burnt offering. It is a picture of wholeness and completeness. It is a picture of complete devotion to the Lord, which the priests, in addition to needing their sins dealt with, the priests will commit themselves entirely to this work. At the end of verse 18, We read this, that it is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And I love these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul connects this language to the sacrifice of Christ. He says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Those are some of the most precious words in the Bible. Because we can be assured of this in all of our sinfulness, in all of our failures, in all of our moments in which we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, in all the moments in which we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. The one thing we can be assured of, the one thing we can know for sure is that when Christ gave himself up for us on the cross, it was most certainly and unequivocally a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words... God wholeheartedly, joyfully accepted it. That's our confidence. Our confidence is in that great sacrifice, that that was accepted by God. And because that was accepted by God, we can be accepted by God through the blood of this Christ. Hebrews 13, 15 brings this down to our everyday lives. That through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Uh, When is our lives like this pleasing aroma to the Lord? When do our lives look like this whole burnt offering to the Lord? They look like that when we praise God. They look like that when we give God thanks through Jesus Christ for all the things in our lives. When we even, uh, as we read in James chapter 1 verse 2, when we count it pure joy and we give God thanks for our trials. That's when we most look like what we are seeing here with these burnt offerings. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a a pleasing aroma 
to the Lord when we refrain from sin. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord when you are tempted to look and you don't. When you're tempted to gossip and you don't. When you're tempted to click and you don't. That is a pleasing aroma to our God. He receives those sacrifices of praise. He receives those sacrifices of holiness in our members. And he receives them, though they are stained, through that one great fragrant offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, the third sacrifice runs from verses 19 to 28. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next time, so I'm only going to look at that briefly. But the other ram is here killed, and this is called the ram of ordination. Now, this idea of to ordain is to fill the hands, and it anticipates that picture of Aaron and his sons waving these things before the Lord. It also anticipates the picture of the priests actually filling their hands with the instruments that they would need in order to carry out their work. Listen to the application of the blood again in verses 20 to 21. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Here the picture is of the entire person from head to toe, represented simply by the right toe and the right hand and the right earlobe going along the entire person. But I think there is also significance here to the body parts chosen. They are to listen to the Lord their God. They are to carry out the work with their hands unto the Lord their God. And they are to walk with their feet in the way of the Lord their God. And then sprinkled with the oil and the blood. They are covered. They are commissioned. They are called by the Lord to this holy work. Finally, and we'll talk more about this next week, we have this wave offering. The meat and the unleavened bread and cakes are waved forward and backwards before the Lord and then burned on the altar. Moses gets the breast as he does the sacrifice and the priests are to receive the thigh as we read there in verses 27 to 28. And this anticipates the the eating of the priests and this fellowship with the Lord. So as we close this morning, I just want to bring your mind back to this big idea. Death. Death. The refrain and kill it. And kill it. And kill it. We are all experiencing death in our bodies. We experience the imperfection of our health. We experience the weakness of our joints and other things. We are experiencing death. And beyond that, death has touched, uh, if you think about this room, how many people known closely by people in this room have died just in the last month? Death is a reality. And that's why we see it so big here in the ordination of these priests is because they will deal in death. 
They will deal in the death of many, many substitutionary sacrifices, all of which pointing to the one sacrifice who defeats death forever. There is only one death killer, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is going to come for us all. Unless the Lord returns, we will all end up in the ground. Sorry to break that in that way, but it is true. We're all going to end up there. But the question is, will we rise again with glorified bodies one day? And will our souls, when they leave our bodies, go to be with the Lord? If so, it is only through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for all that you Give us, Lord, and all that you feed us with from your word. We thank you for the significance of the Old Testament priests, the Aaronic priesthood. We thank you for how uh, it leaves your people looking for something different, something better, something eternal. We thank you at the same time how even in its imperfection, it shines forth the glories of Christ, the true high priest. Lord, we thank you for our high priest. And we pray in his name and through him this morning for our church and for our own individual lives, Lord, that we would be your holy people, not just in theory, not just in our hearts, but Lord, that this would show up in our lives in real concrete ways. We pray for your grace, for we know that all that we do is stained by sin. We praise you, God, that through this one great sacrifice, our deeds come up to you as a pleasing aroma. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.